0: Welcome to Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Rolling Stone Executive Editor Nathan Brackett. Today we're gonna talk about candidates, music, what candidates should be listening to, how it affects the Republic, and a lot of other stuff. But we're gonna start with what we're listening to in the office. I'm here with Simon Bozick levinson Rolling Stone Record Reviews Editor, and Brittany Spanos, staff writer. And we're gonna talk about a couple uh, songs that we've been enjoying lately. The first one is by Rostam, Batman Leash of Vampire Weekend, who just left the group and has been doing some solo production work and is also putting out a couple songs.
1: Yeah, he's sort of been doing a lot of his own projects over the past few years. He scored the Broadway play This Is Our Youth with a Michael Sarah and Tavi Gevinson and then he also did this really great song Need Your Love with Charlie XCX and Warm Blood off of Carly Rae Jepsen's recent album Emotion. So he's been sort of seeing what it's like to be a solo artist and solo producer over the past few years on his own.
0: Let's talk about this
2: song. Yeah, so in addition to announcing his departure from the group Rostam released a new version of a song called Wood, which he had originally released, I think, on his Tumblr in 2011 in a sort of more stripped-down demo form. Now it was a a complete recording. It sounds amazing. It has this really unique, warm, airy, produced orchestral almost sound that you know sort of sounds like the kind of thing that only he could do, and I think it's a really great sign for all the things he can do from here. Let's listen to a minute of it.
3: As the
0: think a lot of people would hear that and think of a lot of the things that they love from early Vampire Weekend especially like I I can totally imagine Ezra Koenig singing that.
1: Yeah definitely and Rostam wrote this really great post about where the song sort of came from and how it started with a collaboration with Ariel Rekshayid the producer he's worked with he worked with Brandon Flowers really recently on his solo album and how it's inspired by a lot of the Persian music he grew up listening to and I think he described the song's premise as what it's like to lay in bed with someone and have a really wild dream and that they don't know about. And it's really cool because the song is just so colorful and beautiful and sounds like this lucid dream that he's having. And I love that song so much.
0: Me too. We want some more from Rostam. (laughs) For sure. We're going to move to the full album we've been listening to from a group called Wet. Simon, can you tell us a little bit about them?
2: Yeah, WET are a band from New York City. They're a trio of young people who love 90s R&B. To simplify things, that's sort of the huge guiding influence on their music. When you listen to their music, you can hear tons of TLC, Destiny's Child, SWV, these kind of classic 90s R&B girl groups sort of refracted and refined into something that sounds fresh and modern.
1: Yeah, I think that what's great about them is that they sort of reference a lot of the 90s R&B, but it doesn't sound like they're trying too hard to imitate it, like it's very new and fresh.
0: Absolutely. Like, we're definitely in a period where different groups have been like going back to the 90s and the way that they did like 10 years ago to the 80s and finding different parts that they love about it. And I totally agree that it's not like they're just trying to sound like Aaliyah, but they embody some of the stuff that was great about her and other groups.
1: It's very much their own, but you can see what they're referencing and see where they're coming from.
0: Why don't we start with the first song on their record? Uh, it's called It's All in Vain.
1: I don't believe you when you say
3: can't feel
2: One word that's come up in a number of reviews of this album, including Rolling Stone's review, is perfect. And I think that means not just that the album is flawless. That's not exactly what it means. It means that the sound itself is so clean. Every instrument, every hit is exactly in place, exactly where you want it to be and where you expect it to come. It kind of fits together perfectly. They have this, like, pristine
1: feel, and it totally works. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. That sounds like that one perfect moment in a song, but expanded for an entire album.
0: Cool. Well, let's listen to one more song called You're the Best.
1: That one, especially within the lyrics and the harmony that's created with the singer's voice, of all the songs, I feel like that one stuck out to me the most with that girl group vibe sort of being harnessed in there. And it also kind of reminded me of a country song a little bit, or like a really old school, like bluegrass or country song from like the 40s and 50s. Totally
0: the same emotions. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Simon Vozick levinson and Brittany Spanos, thank you.
1: Thanks. Thanks.
0: And we're back. It's an important time for the Republic. It's election season. A lot of the candidates are putting out their talking points. One crucial campaign talking point that I feel has been underexplored with a lot of candidates is their music taste. This is really important to the American public because whoever is president has a lot of sway on who gets Kennedy honors, who plays the White House, who we're going to be listening to at the inauguration. I mean, in a way, the commander-in-chief is one of the most important talent bookers in the country, so I feel like we need to take a hard look at all the candidates' music taste (laughs) Luckily, we have David Brown here who just completed a really exhaustive special report on the candidates' music tastes. You talked to a lot of them. You did deep research on their campaign playlists, on their musical history, what they listened to a few years ago, what they listen to now. And also, as part of a public service, we're going to have some recommendations for the candidates. And we have a couple critics. John Dolan, senior writer for Rolling Stone, and Brittany Spanos, rollingstone.com staff writer. Uh, Both of them are going to chime in as we go through the candidates and talk about what each of them should maybe be listening to in the interests of keeping the country moving forward and making sure our presidential candidates are up on the latest music. Let me just start this off by saying with President Obama, no matter what you think of him, I feel like we are losing probably the president with maybe the coolest music taste ever in, in the history of the U.S. I mean, this was a guy who could go through Stevie Wonder's run of epic albums in the early 70s, name his favorite songs. This is a guy who also named a deep Kendrick Lamar album cut as his favorite song of 2015, and I think we're all going to miss him. So, I mean, they're big shoes to fill, and I think we need to take a hard look at this. So, David, tell me a little bit about your experience of, of talking to all these candidates about their music.
4: Well, you know, this is such an unusual election cycle in so many ways and the music has played a part of that. I, I can't remember a time when pop music, rock or hip-hop has played such a role in an election cycle. We've had it in the past here or there, you know, Jimmy Carter having the Allman Brothers play for him at benefits. But if you look at the connection this year, whether it's Bernie Sanders once making a record, Marco Rubio tweeting that he can't wait for Straight out of Compton to premiere so we can go see it, and on and on. The, every candidate's so Seems to have this real connection to music or uses it in some ways that we just haven't seen to that extent And I past think you can definitely cycles. say that
0: this candidate class is maybe the most pop-culturally savvy music-wise right. generation of candidates. All of the candidates are either baby boomers who grew up with classic rock, which is obviously an important era of music, and you kind of had to be a music fan, even if you were a member of young Republicans. You couldn't just shut out the world of music and pass. past. Maybe in the mid-20th century, you could get away by just going to a classical music concert. That's not the case anymore. Right. The, the, all these candidates grew up with music, grew up with records in their room or uh, hi-fi. And then you also have younger candidates like Generation X candidates like Rubio, who are bringing a totally different flavor, definitely to the Republican Party. Why don't we just start going through the candidates and just sure. taking a deep look at each of them? All right, let's start with the Democratic front runner, Hillary Clinton. David, can you tell me a little bit about her taste?
4: Well, basically, she is the archetypal boomer rocker fan. And that's what comes through in what she's said in the past. I mean, starting with having Fleetwood Mac play for the Clintons twice. Don't. And she said in interviews she loves the Beatles and the Stones. uh, Very much of that generation, you know, she grew up dancing to Supremes Records in college, at college parties. But, you know, it's interesting that she hired an outside consulting firm to come up with a playlist for her campaign trail.
0: Right. So, I mean, there are definitely people who don't like Hillary Clinton have certainly probably already said, actually, there's been a meme on the Internet from Bernie Sanders fans saying, oh, Hillary isn't genuine about her music tastes. And people who don't like Hillary Clinton have definitely said, like, oh, look, she hired a campaign consultant to create her playlist where somebody like Donald Trump creates his own set list for his campaign rallies. Ultimately, she could be our commander-in-chief, so we have to take a look at the songs on this playlist. Can you walk us through a few of them?
4: The recurring theme for her playlist seems to be songs about fighting and standing up for yourself. So you've got things like Stronger by Kelly Clarkson. You've got Believer by American Authors, Fighter by Gym Class Heroes. These kind of inspiring power ballad empowerment songs is sort of what ties it all together. Look, it's very savvy. This is the exact playlist she plays at every single rally. It doesn't fluctuate. It's sort of the musical equivalent of getting your message on point.
0: And she's also called out some female musicians as kind of role models in a recent editorial. Right. Can you talk about a little bit? Yeah, she's given
4: shout outs to, you know, everybody from Loretta Lynn to Lana Del Rey and Selena Gomez who are being inspiring figures. I think she really does want to connect as much as she can with young women voters, which is actually suddenly becoming a problem. (laughs) Uh, And let let uh, me
0: say, it does sound like this editorial, just from looking at it, was probably written by a speechwriter. A little bit, she's saying, these women are the best at what they do, whether that's fronting a raucous soul band, writing hypnotic dance albums, unspooling intricate rap lyrics about female empowerment, or crooning ballads about heartbreak and young love, which actually sounds like it might have come from a record review section. Right. Uh, (laughs) Did she hire
4: someone at Rolling Stone to write that? (laughs) Do we not know about Uh, that? Is that what's happening?
0: I think it's probably pretty unlikely that Hillary Clinton is listening to Lana Del Rey's High by the Beach. (laughs) Although I
4: thought it was so interesting in that list she left out Taylor Swift, which seems like an obvious person to include in that. Absolutely. I don't, uh, not quite sure why that happened, but... Uh, you it's know, true. You maybe, could argue the reverse. Maybe Taylor leans Republican. I don't really know. You I could don't.
0: say if she was really trying to be non-controversial, she should have argued for Taylor Swift. Yeah. Right. Well, I'd like to throw this open to our critics a little bit. What kind of music should Hillary Clinton be listening to? Britney Spanos, do you have any recommendations?
1: I have a lot of recommendations for Hillary, but I have one specific song and one album. I think that she should definitely go for Confident by Demi Lovato if she wants mm. like a good empowerment song. That would like, fit on
0: the campaign playlist for yeah, sure. Yeah. Right? Like
1: that sort of sums it all up into one song right and then i think that controversial opinion for her album recommendation but one direction is made in the am inspired by classic rock it's current the kids Mm -hmm. love them right so i think that that she could lock
0: into it and also yeah
1: yeah they have the Fleetwood mac vibes on there they love rolling stones and like the beatles and everything so sure
0: styles has that mick jagger thing going and she could probably relate to in (laughs) some way right john dolan any ideas for hillary It seems like what she
5: would want to do is sort of combine these two impulses. You have the impulse towards like appealing to young women who she did lose in Iowa, actually by 10 points to Bernie with this kind of classic rock taste. So you could have an artist maybe like Jenny Lewis. or like Haim who are combining new music with classic with you know they have a lot of songs that sound like Fleetwood Mac so sort of just looking to sort of music that might actually speak to maybe like you know a band like maybe slater Kenny bands and people in their 30s and in their their late 20s and their early 30s and kind of moving ahead a little bit and combining things that she actually probably likes
0: with things that might resonate with people who are a little younger absolutely okay Chelsea Clinton you have your ideas for Christmas All right, let's just have a quick moment of silence for Martin O'Malley (laughs) you know he was a big Pogues fan yeah Uh, a, a talented musician, no longer part of the campaign, but we're moving on. I asked on.
4: Martin O'Malley what was his favorite song. He named a song by Luca Bloom, who is that Irish Unbelievable. indie singer-songwriter. I can't imagine Un- another candidate <laughs> who would have pulled that out.
3: It,
0: it's a loss.
4: And O'Malley recorded four albums with his own Irish folk band, O'Malley's March.
0: All right, let's move on. Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders has only one album out, but even that's kind of notable. Okay, we need to talk about this Bernie Sanders album, which he recorded in 1987. David, can you tell us a little bit about this Bernie Sanders album?
4: Yeah, he was the mayor of Burlington, Vermont, at the time, and he was talked into making this record with some local musicians. It's called We Shall Overcome. They only pressed up like a thousand copies on cassette at the time, and it's a strange record. Half of it, side one in the cassette days, was his versions of things like This Land Is Your Land and Where Have All the Flowers Gone. It would be a stretch to say he was singing it. He's sort of like let's let's talk, give it, let's give a it. listen
0: to something. Let's play one track.
6: Where have all the soldiers gone long time ago? Where have all the soldiers gone, gone to graveyards, everyone?
0: I mean, obviously that's just remarkable, I mean, it's like rooted, I feel like Bernie was probably part of the classic 50s folk, Pete Seeger generation. It, obviously is a product of that. Can you talk a little bit about his music tastes now?
4: As with Ben Carson, he's predominantly a classical music guy. But as he told the magazine, he of course loves Motown, which many of his generation do, along with folk music. And he did confess to a special guilty pleasure love of disco and ABBA in particular. I wouldn't call it ABBA disco, but in his mind kind of lumps them all together. And he I guess he loves Celine Dion as well, so he has an interesting guilty pleasure pop side to him. He just used Simon and Garfunkel's America in one of his commercials, which kind right. of
0: parks back to his kind of 60s folk roots. Critics, do we have any uh, ideas for him?
1: I think it might be good for him to give a chance to a lot of the artists that have really supported him. And I think Run the Jewels, like Killer mm-hmm. Mike, is such a huge supporter of him, and they've done the interviews together, and, I mean, they seem to, like, really get along, and so I hope he's listened to Run the Jewels, too. I, I
0: certainly hope he has, because it's an yeah. excellent record, it and is. it seems like it would be a great entry point for him. Right. I mean, let, let's face it, Bernie Sanders is probably not going to become a hip-hop fan, but like, <laughs> this is probably something... something... Something he can listen to and might help introduce him to that music.
1: Exactly. And it's such a solid album. And I think it has a great message, great beats, like great mixture of all those things that he loves, but in the context of today and the music that's popular today. So, yeah.
0: For sure. All right, let's move on to the Republicans. We're going to start with Donald Trump whose music tastes seem very much set and very much his own. Can you tell us a little bit about them, David Brown?
4: Well, he famously was quoted as saying he gave one of his music teachers a black eye or something in school because she didn't know enough about music, and it's a very strange story. How does that even happen? Yeah, 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 uh, you kind of wonder if it actually did. But he does seem to pride himself on being very hands-on, with music, picking songs like Brown Sugar for his campaign trail, for his rallies. They use Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. That anyway. is definitely
0: his signature song, it's and you hear him like- at every rally.
4: Right, he played Bruce Springsteen's Born in the USA went around to taunt Ted Cruz when there was the whole uh, naturalization controversy going on Right, which of
0: course Bruce Springsteen I'm sure loved considering the actual message (laughs) of that song, but we're not going (laughs) to get into that
4: When he's been spotted at concerts, uh, Trump he he was spotted at one of the Roger Waters Wall concerts He he, he he, he left halfway through, so I don't know what that was about.
0: Living in New York City a lot of us have seen Donald Trump at shows he was at the big Adele show in Radio City which was taped for HBO, he definitely He is someone who goes out to shows and catches a lot of the kind of the big name classic rock bands.
4: Yeah, I saw him about 10 years ago or so at the Crosby Sills National Young reunion tour where he was chatting with Salman Rushdie and Patti Smith, who were all sitting in the same area. It's a very strange sight, the three of them.
0: This is not something we're going to get too far deep into, but a lot of those classic rockers have gotten back at him and told him not to use their songs at rallies. Neil Young asked him to not play Rockin' in the, Rockin the Free, the Free World.
4: World. And Aerosmith, even though Steven Tyler is a Republican, asked him not to play Dream On Uh, and R.E.M. We're
0: not thrilled that he used It's the End of the World as We Know It. Let's see where he could go. Britney Spanos, where do you think Donald Trump should go with his music tastes?
1: I love the Twisted Sister song We're Not Gonna Take It is a song that he loves so much because he reminds me of sort of the egotistical nature of hair metal and 80s hair metal just sort of super cocky super into yourself. He's he's
0: got some hair game for (laughs) sure. Yeah.
1: So I feel like he'd probably really love listening to like Guns N' Roses and Poison all the time and listening to a lot of this hyper-masculine hair metal stuff.
0: I wonder actually if Donald Trump, because he's of a certain demographic, has actually listened to Guns N' Roses. Yeah. They, I can see him totally loving them.
1: Definitely. Some Welcome to the Jungle all the time. Yeah. It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy,
0: easy man, it, it is <laughs> so easy for him. Uh, John Dolan? Well, the one thing we know about Trump is that he loves Trump.
5: And even before he announced, there was a hip-hop song on a great record, Ray Schremer's record called Up Like Trump. You know, they were talking about how they were up like Trump. He likes negotiators. So, you know, who are pop music's greatest kind of deal-makers? Jay-Z, maybe? He would want to, li- you know, like get some tips about, you know, maybe Ten Crack Commandments
0: by Biggie could be something he could listen to to sort of get more business tips, because he's really into that. He's always talking about... I could see that maybe the one song that could get Donald Trump listening to hip-hop would be a song about Donald Trump. Yeah, right. So this like is their best shot. There's Ray drummer, does it. All right, we're not going to give a lot of time to Ted Cruz because he's pretty clearly not a huge music fan. But, David, can you tell us a little bit about what he has talked about as far as his music tastes?
4: Well, what he has said publicly is that he was a rock fan until 9 11. And the way the music responded to 9/11 made him give up on rock and roll and go to country. He's never quite elaborated on that, and we're not sure not what exactly he means, sure what by he's the talking way, about. Was yeah, it I, the Dixie I, Chicks talking
0: about uh, George Dixie Bush? Church,
4: maybe he was offended by Neil Young's yeah, "Let's Roll." Little, maybe I Eddie mean, you know, Better wearing it's, the it's,
0: mask and talking about George Bush. And the only band he's ever cited
4: by name is America. So I guess uh, right. whether he likes the name itself or whether he has the Jones for uh, Ventura Highway and horse right. with no name uh, driving yeah. around Texas with the wind blowing in his hair and cranking right. some American It's almost tunes. like he
0: just picked the band just because they're named America.
4: You, you, you right. have to wonder about that, yeah. Right.
0: What do we recommend for Ted Cruz? All we know is that he likes the mainstream country and he has some sort of rock roots. It's a tough one. John Dolan, any ideas? Well, you want to try to get country that maybe could bring him back to his natural true
5: taste, right? So he's right. obviously, you know, he just loves these messages. So maybe something like the Zac Brown Band, something like that. I was thinking, Good you know, call. Brad Good Paisley, call. guy who plays guitar, you know, great guitar player, rock influence. There's one specific Brad Paisley song. It's from his record American Saturday Night, which I think is a few, four or five years old.
0: Excellent record. Everybody's
5: Here. It's a really great record. It's called Everybody's Here. It's about, he just broke up with his girlfriend. He goes to the bar. He feels alienated. No one wants to talk to him because it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. He's just bummed out. And I imagine that's what Ted Cruz feels like in the Senate. He's just right. no friends, nobody <laughs> wants to hang
0: out with him, just he's got to go home. John so, Dolan's opinions are his own. That's right. <laughs> no, it's, it's, other senators have claimed it's, right. he's, he's not a popular guy. I like it. I, I, I like Brad Paisley for uh, Ted Cruz. <laughs> now we're going to get to the Republican candidate with the most interesting music taste. Is a clear Gen X guy. David Brown, tell us about Marco Rubio.
4: Yeah, this is a guy probably... I would guess the first person ever running for president who claims he basically grew up listening to Grandmaster Flash and Africa Bombada.
6: That is
0: really, that's a huge statement in and of itself. You're right. Believe it or not, he probably would be the first hip-hop president in the sense that Obama always talked about Jay-Z, but he's a little old to be a hip-hop guy. His heart was always in Stevie Wonder. He could listen to hip-hop, but kind of in that older brother way where it's like, oh yeah, I can listen to some of this stuff, but I'm not. Marco Rubio really is kind of 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 it.
4: Yeah, you wonder if Obama uh he's maybe heard the message, but did it really speak to him the way it probably did to someone of Rubio in his generation? And so that's a really interesting thing. And and, and you know, certainly some of his favorite songs are things like Eminem's Lose Yourself and NWA's Straight Outta Compton. Again, that those and, are And let's
0: just pause for a minute because it's I mean, let's you <laughs> yeah. can kind of see Eminem's Lose Yourself. I mean, that's a great song, but also a song that a lot of like people who weren't super into hip hop could get into. Okay. Straight out of Compton. I mean, let's just listen to a little bit of it. He says he's sworn off some of his hip-hop roots, and he does listen to other stuff now because he doesn't want to play hip-hop around the kids these days. What, he what very well he seems
4: very well-versed in the West Coast history in the 90s and right. about Biggie and Tupac and everything that happened there. So that's I mean, another interesting side of him that you're not going to hear from other candidates. It does
0: feel like he's kind of trying to have it both ways. You know, he's trying to be like, oh, I know this stuff, but I reject it on some level if I have to go speak in front yeah, of it's
4: or, Yeah, it's a tough yeah. thing to balance out, I would imagine, for someone his age. What else does he listen
0: to now?
1: Well, he has cited Avicii and Kelvin Harris as like, EDM artists that he loves to listen to when he's on the road. And, of course, he still cites West Coast rap a lot. But
0: I will say this: it does make... Sense on some level for Marco Rubio to like EDM because the, the Ultra Music Fest is a huge thing in mm-hmm. Florida. EDM is a big economic driver yeah, in Florida and he loves in Pitbull general. Too. And, he, and he does like Pitbull yeah. too. Yeah,
1: so that's like a good like cross between hip hop and EDM. So I think that he really loves dance music. Right. Probably a raver.
4: And he, <laughs> came, and he came to Pitbull's defense on Twitter when mm-hmm. people were dissing Pitbull.
0: Right, right. right. Local talent again. So what, what would we recommend for Marco Rubio? He's trying to be a Republican, running for president. He's He's got kids at home. He's got some hip-hop roots, supposedly. What would he like?
1: I think he should go deeper with this EDM thing. I think he should explore some tropical house. Like, that's a really fun... excellent. Pick. Yeah, like, that's so prevalent with all the pop music right now. And a lot of artists like Justin Bieber have, like start sure. using Trophouse and a lot of their own songs. Any so song th-
0: specifically he should listen to?
1: Where Are You Now by Justin Bieber is probably a really good entry point, but I think Kaigo is the artist he should be exploring and maybe like Cheerleader by Omi and songs like that that have become really popular that right. he should probably try. And I think that probably Jack Yu's album would be oh, yeah, a really totally. fun mix That's of like... That's the perfect mix. Yeah, it has 2 Chains on there and it has Bungee Garland and it has Justin Bieber and it has a Luna George. So It's a good mixture of like Pop and hip hop and EM.
0: Jack U seems like a perfect mix for yeah. uh, Marco Rubio. Just enough hip-hop for him
6: now. Right. <laughs> Not too much. Not too much. I got like clip like Bring home the bacon. You ain't from Kingston. You are You take Now
0: we're gonna talk about John Kasich, probably the most moderate Republican out there. David Brown, he's got some interesting opinions, and he made one bold promise.
4: Kasich has made the promise to reunite Pink Floyd if he gets elected to play at the inauguration. I don't know between that or repairing the infrastructure in the country. I don't
0: know what would be a more difficult task for him to do. <laughs> he's got my vote. <laughs> Brittany Spanos, any ideas for John Kasich?
1: Twenty One Pilots put out a really great album with Blurryface uh, a couple of years ago. I think that the song Tear in My Heart is like a really cool, like throwbacky rock song, but but with a like... broad,
0: moderate appeal. Yeah, which I could see Kasich locking right. <laughs> into. I, absolutely. All right, we're going to end with two more pretty fascinating guys, music taste-wise. They're both Republicans. Ben Carson. David, talk to me a, a little bit about Ben Carson. He actually is a musician. He already has a musician past.
4: Yeah, he played in the jazz band in high school, and he is a classical music fan. And his wife is even a classical pianist. He was, so, a, he was a baritone sax player? He, was a, he played the, the cornet and the baritone horn. Right. He would play Motown songs.
0: Right. So, Obviously from yeah. Detroit. And he's a, from a city Detroit. with a you know great musical tradition, grew with, up in the sixties.
4: This is a guy who was born in nineteen fifty one, was a tween and a teenager right at the peak of Motown in the early to mid sixties, and he was in the same City. But what's interesting is that even though he loves Motown, when you actually ask him about it, he'll speak very knowledgeably about the Four Tops and some of the other bands he likes. But his classical side really is what informs his love of pop music. He loves a big swelling orchestra and sort of the pomp and circumstance of that side of rock. Right. Which means that I was so surprised when I asked him what one of his favorite records was. And it was the Moody Blues, Days of Future Past which uh, first completely startled me, but when you think about it, it actually makes all the sense in the world, given he loves classical music, that he would love right. that Right, I kind mean, Ben sense. Carson's
0: music tastes are a little bit like Ben Carson's political positions. Some of them are kind of outlier positions, but they're kind of interesting, somewhat compelling. The thing that really threw me about him is that he loves MacArthur Park, which is this kind of epic AM radio hit, often a punchline for a lot of people. It was written by Jimmy Webb. He
4: was very specific in saying he did not like the Donna Summer disco version from about 10 years later, he still loved that original Richard Harris version that's a 7 or 8 minutes long. He loved the different sections. He went into great detail about each of the three different sections in the recording. You
6: know, it has three different parts. I think part two is just
0: beautiful music.
4: Just the way he also went into great detail about the instrumental break Kind of a Gloria Gaynor's I Will Survive. So, it's I mean, kind of a surgeon's song.
0: level of detail. Let's listen to a little <laughs> bit of uh, MacArthur Park.
3: Green was never waiting for us, girl. It ran one step ahead as we followed in the dam.
4: Speaking of the surgeon, he would often play classical music during surgeries and grill his staff to name the composer. Wow! Put, the, he put them on the spot. A, so. a,
0: a tough taskmaster. Exactly. Okay. Even that all right. Way. So Ben Carson, I would describe him as someone with you know some musical sophistication, someone with a classical music side, also loves some pop and rock. Kind of a, a tough nut. So this might be a tough one for the critics. What would we recommend for Ben Carson? He seems like a prog rock guy at heart. Like He likes the combination of classic rock
5: and classical music. He seems like a guy who brain Salad surgery might have been an album he would have really liked by Emerson Lake and Palmer. In his current music, it's tough to find the sort of lineage there, but the song I was thinking of was Mountain at My Gate by Foles, which is a seven-minute modern kind of alt-rock version of prog rock and it's, you know, pushy and exciting and it's also loud and Ben Carson always seems kind of, when he talks, he seems kind of half-asleep sometimes, so maybe kind of get him going a little bit. It's kind of hard-rocking.
0: All right. We're going to end with uh, Chris Christie who is interesting for a presidential candidate because I don't think we've ever seen someone with this kind of monomaniacal fandom for one artist, as we've seen in Chris Christie. He is a huge, huge, huge Bruce Springsteen fan. David, can you tell us a little bit about this?
4: It started when he was a teenager in 75. Some older friends took him to a Bruce show in New Jersey. He hadn't heard that much of Bruce's music at that point, he told me, and he was blown away by this show at Seton Hall University. He
0: actually talks a little bit about that when you you spoke to him for this.
4: I spoke with him for the story and couldn't get him off the phone. You know, after an hour, he was still going on about his favorite music, but a lot of it was Bruce. And Bruce spoke to him immediately, went out and got Born to Run, which was Bruce's brand new album. And from that moment on, he became this fan. He would follow them through the 70s. He said he was so disappointed when the East Street Band broke up in the late 80s the first he, time he around. He can just
0: go, he can go really deep. He was talking about, like, album, overlooked albums. One thing okay. that surprised me from your story is that he loves magic, which is actually Springsteen's album about the rock. Wrongness of the Iraq War and George W. Bush, a very passionate record about that. He called out Radio Nowhere from that album.
6: I really like Magic. I think some of the songs in Magic are really special. Radio Nowhere is a lot of fun, and I think it's a a relatively underrated album.
4: That's his favorite later album. His favorite album overall is Born to Run. But I asked him, well, what about the later records? And Magic was the one he immediately went to. He loved, you know, Girls in Their Summer Clothes and Radio Nowhere. Called it his underrated
0: classic of recent years. This is a new level of of depth (laughs) of Bruce fandom. We're going to try and be a little more original with Chris Christie. An obvious choice would probably be people who he's already heard, like Bruce spinoffs, like John Cafferty and the Beaver Brown Band, or Joe Grishecki. But John Dolan, who do you think Chris Christie should be listening to?
5: There was a record that came out last year by Dan Behar. He's in the band New Pornographers. He has a side band called Destroyer. And the record's called Times Square. The song's called Dream Lover. And it is an indie rock version of Springsteen. It's an update of Springsteen. It's a great record. It's other elements in it too. There's some Bowie. But it's, the song itself, it's like it's on Born to Run.
0: Guys, we're going to wrap it up with that. I want to thank you for all your advice, for all the presidential candidates, and let's just keep on rocking in the free world. All right, we're going to talk about music news. I'm here with Rolling Stone Music News Editor Jason Newman. Hello. Uh, it is Grammys time. The big nominees this time around are Kendrick Lamar, Taylor Swift, a few other people have a, uh, multiple nominations. The weekend. The weekend. But what we're going to talk about here is that, as a lot of people know, at least in the industry, is that it's not always about
7: the awards with the Grammys. Even more important is what, Jason? It's the performances, and more specifically, the performances that you're going to see on Twitter and Facebook. Live right. and the next day.
0: The ones that get picked up that become the things that people talk about the next day. Every year there are a couple significant sales bumps. And that's what we often look at. Like who are the people who came out of the Grammys? And this goes back years ago with Ricky Martin when he came out and performed a song and was all of a sudden an instant star. That's the moment that everybody is looking for. Right. This uh, the
7: star maker performance, which is increasingly rare. Absolutely. One of those
0: recent performances was Kendrick Lamar with Imagine Dragons. A couple years ago, that was one where everybody was talking about Kendrick Lamar the day after. The guy who runs the Grammys, his name is Ken Ehrlich. He's the person who's trying to create those moments. And he's been very successful overall. How were the Grammy ratings last year?
7: Two years ago, actually, it was 28 million, which was a huge hit. And then last year, it actually hit a six-year low. Don't forget, a six-year low means still 25 million people are watching your show. And if you look at how many shows are actually garnering that rating that aren't the Super Bowl, essentially, it's still a pretty spectacular number.
0: A few years ago Ehrlich changed the formula for the Grammys he put less emphasis on the awards right. less shots of people at podiums talking <laughs> right. more performances generally at the Grammys they'll only give awards out to really just the top awards and a few others right, right now it's pretty much just back-to-back L Cool J announcing big star after big star after and looking his star. lips
7: every four seconds right. <laughs> it's almost true. like you know it's funny because you almost you look at like the MTV VMAs right and there was never really a time where quote unquote winning a VMA was a huge thing right. relative to the performances. Right. And the Grammys were sort of the, the staid, more sophisticated cousin right. of that, right. whereas like, you know, if you won Album of the Year, that was obviously a huge deal, and it and still is, but you are definitely seeing a shift into this more kind of VMA style where it's really more about what are people going to be talking about instantaneously? Right. Um, it's the second screen experience, right? right? It's like I have my phone and I'm tweeting about the Grammys. I'm probably not going to be tweeting about the Best Alternative Album nominees, right. but I'm going to be tweeting about the Lemmy that right are going to do it
0: Ehrlich talked to Brian a little bit about how he tries to create those moments and there's a lot of pressure on artists to make those moments to be first, to be the opening performance. Ehrlich talked a little bit about that kind of pressure and lobbying.
6: I don't make a decision on that until the show is pretty complete and, and uh, there is a lot of lobbying. Um, the reality is this, and this is what I try and tell artists who I would rather not have open the show who really would like to, yes, there's a prestige factor at opening the Grammy Awards. But on the other hand, our audience grows over the course of, uh, of the three and a half hours, grows big. And there are probably, I can't give you an absolute number, but there are conceivably a third to, to maybe half, many more people that are watching this show at 9.30 to 10.30 than there are at 8 o'clock. So don't you really want to be there where that many more millions of people are watching rather than opening? So on the other hand, uh, sometimes I will tell an artist, this is a perfect place for you. He also talked about working with Lady Gaga
0: to try to come up with a David Bowie tribute, which was some interesting behind-the-scenes stuff.
6: Early on in the the conversations, because like anything that we do or she does, there's an evolutionary process to it. So I think early on, in, in some ways... She felt that it was important to impart kind of a historical perspective, you know, and maybe uh she even used the words a couple of times, you know teach people more about David Bowie, but as it evolved and with with niall's involvement and with hers kind of having a little more time to think it through it's really it 's really much more now about how do we celebrate his life through his music and what he did
0: isn 't the overarching importance of the Grammys these days that there are really only so many places that grab the attention of the whole world. Only so many music things right. that grab everybody's attention. We, I mean, we're not in the age of, of big variety shows of Donnie and Marie <laughs> where everybody's tuning in or Ed Sullivan. Right now, the Grammys is one of the few things along with maybe the Super Bowl performance
7: that actually does that. Right. When you look at like how fractured music is, and, and obviously it's been in the past, let's say five to 10 years, obviously the big overarching story is the fact that you can get anything you want, but because of that, you can get any genre and everyone's kind of so fractured. There's so few places where sort of everyone is coming together. And I hate right. to use the horrible critic word monoculture, but I will drop that word because I am a rock critic and I will I will own it. In terms of the monoculture, there's so few events that really capture everyone's attention in music. And the VMAs, I think, to an extent. To a much lesser extent, the AMAs, but not really, because right. people are kind of like, eh. But the Grammys are really one of one of those few places where everyone's sort of tuning right. in at the same time to see what happens. It won't be as unpredictable as the VMAs, I think, but there's so many moments I think are going to happen that people are going to want to check it out, even casual. Fans. For a brief
0: few hours, For we're all f- in the same place, or maybe may- a long, it's, it's maybe a, a brief, brief four seven hours. hours. All right, <laughs> maybe, maybe a long seeming
7: two and a half hours. <laughs> it's way more than a few hours. Right. But
0: it's a brief. Sometimes four it feels hours like that, like- or not if they're doing their job right. Right,
7: but I think that's it, kind of what it speaks to.
0: Jason Newman, thanks so much. Cool, thank you for having me. All right. We're going to end today's episode with our Reader Mail segment. I'm here with senior writer Brian Hyatt, who recently interviewed Kid Rock and made some news. Brian, can you tell us a little bit about this story? So,
3: yeah, Kid Rock and I were talking for a magazine feature called The Last Word, where the artist shares a little bit of wisdom, talks about life lessons, and
0: uh, that sort of thing. It's kind of like a broad philosophical page, kind of a nice break at the end of the issue. Right.
3: Then at the end, you know, Kid Rock is a Republican, which is pretty unusual in the music industry. They're that really that un-
0: news is out there. That's true. Yes.
3: It leaves him almost alone among big-name right. musicians. So as uh, you may be aware, there's a, a primary going on. Uh, <laughs> so it seemed appropriate to ask Kid Rock about his choice in the current primary. And, and here's what he actually had to say in the interview.
6: I'm digging Trump. You know, I feel like a lot of people, whether whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, I think if you get Hillary or Bernie or you get Rubio or Cruz or whoever, there's gonna be the same shit. Has that much fucking changed? From when any when it's been a Democrat or Republican in office in our in our lifetime anyway, I haven't really seen this big like fucking change. Which, you know, obviously, some people are fucked up <laughs> uh, that's, a, that's a long debate, but um, you know, it just seems like the shots, you know, my feeling live fucking business guy and then run like a fucking business It's not really working too well running it not like a business. I mean, what business fucking survives when they're fucking broke?
0: Okay, so when we posted that interview on rollingstone.com Needless to say, we got a lot of feedback from a lot of readers. Here's a tweet from your old pal, Tony, on Twitter. Oh, wow, Sarah Palin and Kid Rock? All he's missing is the insane clown posse, and he's got the worst endorsements imaginable. Here's another one from Sidney Peterson. I can't wait for Donald Trump to announce Kid Rock as his running mate. Hashtag match made in heaven. So there's both sides uh, are out there. Uh, <laughs> is there? I, I, well, I at least about, a couple. I think just okay. like
3: one side, but yes, okay. someone
0: must have been happy about this. In fairness, Brian, Kid Rock is, is used to this kind of stuff. He's someone who is not afraid of a provocative statement.
3: Kid Rock is not afraid of what wise-ass liberal Twitter thinks of him. Believe me, he does not sit uh, trembling in fear <laughs> at, at those comments
0: for sure. I'd say that's an accurate assessment. Twitter user named Defenestrator says, It's like herpes endorsing a gold pinky ring. Okay, well, there's another side. I think we might leave it at that for our reader mail. It's going to be hard to top that. I think we've all learned a lesson today. Yes. (laughs) Thanks, Brian Hyatt. And that's episode two of Rolling Stone Music Now. Please go to the iTunes store to subscribe or listen on rollingstone.com.